Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Our world is becoming unhinged. Geopolitical tensions are rising. Global challenges are mounting. And we seem incapable of coming together to respond. It's one of the biggest weeks of the year in the world of international relations. Leaders from across the globe have been gathering at the UN General Assembly, delivering speeches and attending events all throughout New York City. If you allow Ukraine to be carved up, is the independence of any nation secure? I'd respectfully suggest the answer is no. While Russia is pushing the world to the final war, Ukraine is doing everything to ensure that after Russian aggression, no one in the world will dare to attack any nation. EU Confidential is here to give you a glimpse of how Europe and EU leaders are faring on the world stage. I'm Suzanne Lynch, host of EU Confidential, and we're coming to you this week from the Big Apple. We caught up with European Commission Executive Vice President Mara Sefcovic, currently serving as the EU's climate chief. And needless to say, climate is one of the top issues dominating discussion here this week. And of course, as you heard in the opening clip, Russia's ongoing war against Ukraine. Also in this episode, we sit down with the outgoing president of the European Investment Bank, Werner Hoyer. He explains how this institution works, how it supports green technologies, not just in Europe, but around the globe. And he gives us some of his views on the battle that everyone is talking about in Brussels. That is, who his successor will be. But first, let's welcome Politico's very own head of audio and executive editor, Anne McElvoy, who's joining me here in Studio New York. Anne, great to have you. It's my debut on your show as well. Very exciting moment. Even more exciting. (laughs) Here we are in New York. Uh, We're usually obviously in Brussels, but you're here because you're launching a new podcast, Power Play. The first episode has been published this week. Tell us about the new offering. So Power Play is an interview show plus commentary from our amazing Politico colleagues on both sides of the Atlantic. Don't think you're not going to get roped into that, Suzanne. (laughs) What I wanted to do, I've been presenting interview shows for a number of years in different places. When I joined Politico, I thought, here we've got the power, we've got policy, we've got politics, we've got tech, we've got business. They don't talk to each other an awful lot on podcasts. And we thought what we would do is hone in on this theme of who has power, let people explain how they use it, challenge them sometimes, and then have our own panel of expert journalists who can say, hmm, what was it they were really saying there and where's it going? Fantastic. So this week, your first guest is Keir Starmer, or I should say Sir Keir. So tell us what he told you on the podcast. We're really pleased to get Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, to be our inaugural guest because it's 
most likely a year at most out from the next British general election. It looks likely there might well be a change of government. But here's a relatively untried leader who hasn't spoken about his foreign policy vision in detail. He agreed to sit down with me. It was at a conference in Montreal of progressives. It was joked about as a bit of a centrist dad's convention with some centrist mums and centrist everybodies. And centrist everybodies is perhaps where Keir Starmer would like to define himself as playing a role on the international stage, reinvigorating that kind of centre-left vision of what British foreign policy could be. So any revelation from him? What kind of insights did you get about these issues? Well, in a week when the focus here in New York is very much on the difficult relationship between autocracies and democracies, how much should they trade together, how much should they try to live together, and where should they challenge each other? And of course, the Ukraine situation is at the very heart of that dilemma. I thought it was interesting. I pressed Keir Starmer a lot on his view on China, for instance, and he was tough on China in terms of trade. He thought perhaps the, the British government had gone too far in bending the knee to Beijing. At the same time, he was clear that he wanted China on board in terms of things like climate targets. So I think we saw a little bit of the tone and the texture of the way he might approach that. On the Russia question, I think he's stuck pretty close to where we are now in terms of support for Ukraine. But I then asked him, what would he do if President Trump came back, the great Shrek of the international system? And he said, well, I think I would deal with that. He agreed he did not at all have the same politics or worldview as Donald Trump. But that's the kind of challenge that a new leader could face, Suzanne. It's not just, Mm. does he know the difference? Can he find China on the map? And does he know what's going on in the Donbass? It's you could be coming in and finding yourself with a vast change in the White House. To what extent can leaders prepare for that? It was just something we wanted to surface. I'm sure we'll come back to it. Yeah, interesting stuff. As you say, we could have uh, Keir Starmer in Downing Street. We've a number of elections next year. The US election over here. We've got European elections uh, back over in Europe. And of course, elections expected in the UK. And um, thanks for that. Look, getting back to what's happening here. What a frenetic week it's been. It always is this UN General Assembly. You've got the great and the good here. You've got side meetings. You've got different summits. Now, you've been here before. Isn't that right? This isn't your first time. Talk about back in the day. I used to come when I was the Moscow bureau chief for the Times of London. We thought we were very grand in those days. It was big, sort of international compact was coming together. There was a lot more of a sense of kind of commonality or at least the attempt to find that at the UN. And I accompanied Mr. Lavrov when he was in particularly benign mood, which seems very unlikely listening to him now, when he he came along to talk about Russia in the international community, how he wanted engagement for Russia. Russia was a strong country. He said, I remember he wanted it to be a reliable partner. Well, as you know, that is rhetoric that has gone out of the window in, in Moscow. And now it would be seen as almost treacherous to talk like that. But that is what this 20 years has been like in the story of Russia in the West. How things have changed. I mean, it was quite a dramatic moment this week we saw President Zelensky addressing the General Assembly for the first time since the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine. We also saw him at that very tense Security Council meeting that went on so long Wednesday here. And Zelensky, I I thought it was interesting, he wasn't just calling out Russia, he was actually calling out the UN and the UN Security Council. Saying, you know, you've got Russia here, you've got this veto problem, this is an issue for the UN. But these criticisms about the UN, about the structure of the UN Security Council in particular, have been around for a very long time. They have been around for a long time. I think 
Vladimir Zelensky would say, now look at the contradictions that you're facing. How do you really show practical support for Ukraine if you've still got Russia coming along, even if Russia's not really playing ball very much when it gets here? On the other hand, it would be an odd international system that didn't have Russia in it somewhere. So it depends where you fall on that kind of issue. I was interested that he is pressing Western institutions harder and harder. There's some frustration there. It's probably to do with the pace of the counteroffensive to regain Ukrainian territory. He does then risk dividing off people who say, well, I support him, but I think you know we have other problems as well and we can't do everything through the prism of Ukraine. And I do think that is something, it's a tension. It may not be a fatal tension, but it is there in the Western alliance. I mean, one thing that's interesting, I'm picking up from diplomats here, Western G7 diplomats, that it was hard to get meetings, essentially, with the Ukrainians this week, that their focus has been talking to the global south, talking to those countries that they don't usually get in front of. They know they have a problem. They know that they are not winning the narrative among many countries in this world. Now, some of that is the fact that Zelensky is going on to Washington, where he will meet uh, a lot of U.S. officials presumably a lot of Republicans as he tries to maintain that support if, as you mentioned earlier, we do have a a Trump return to the White House. But, you know, that idea that you know, the, the the West needs to engage, look at these other perspectives. It is something that we saw last week at the G22 that there is a kind of a, I wouldn't quite say renaissance, but a, a rethink that multilateralism is kind of the way forward and, and the West does want to engage. I think it's also what Washington wants to engage with. So as you suggest... Mr. Zelensky is probably preparing for those talks in, in Washington. Both of them have got the memo that a lot of, of countries, whether one accepts that the global south is a block, I'm very uncomfortable with that thinking. I, I think there are lots of differences between these countries. Mm. But you're right that there's a, a lot of a sense that too many countries are either indifferent, not interested or hostile to backing Ukraine. And even bringing down that level of hostility and indifference would be some sort of a win. He can't really say multilateralism means anything goes, because when your country is threatened existentially and when the whole Western defence and security pillars are teetering, perhaps, uh, when it comes to the implications of Ukraine, you can't really say, well, you know, well, let everyone just have a system that they want to have. But you do need to take more people with you or at least show that you understand their reservations. And I agree with you. I think there's a real change of tone around that at these big international meetings. Mm. Of course, we've got a big contingent here over from Brussels. We've got the head of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, Charles Michel, the European Council President. We've got a number of commissioners here, but there are some names who didn't make the trip over. Yes, Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister, didn't come. Neither did President Macron. He is uh, entertaining the King, King Charles in Paris. I think there's a bit of a sense that if it's transactional, something that needs to be done, can only be done here at the UN, then leaders will come. Otherwise, sometimes they sit out a year. And for some of them, this was it. It certainly was. And thanks so much for joining us here. It's been great to have you on. Best of luck with the new podcast. And to our listeners, you can find PowerPlay in your favourite podcast app. And of course, we will include a link in our show notes to that new podcast coming from Anne McElvoy. Thanks, Anne. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up next are our conversations with European Commission Executive Vice President Maro Sefcovic and EIB Head Werner Hoyer. Stay with us. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Now, we're going to introduce you to an EU institution that some of our listeners may be familiar with, but some may not really know that much about. It's the European Investment Bank, or the EIB for short. The bank is based in Luxembourg, and it's one of the biggest multilateral public lenders in the world. The head of the EIB over the last 12 years has been Werner Hoyer, a German economist and former politician. EU Confidential caught up with him on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly this week, overlooking the Manhattan skyline. One area of investment and of interest at the moment is Ukraine. We are in the situation now into the second year of war, the invasion by Russia of its neighbour. What kind of work is the EIB doing on Ukraine? Before I come to that question, let me say that we have been in Ukraine for a very long time, not only since the beginning of the independence of Ukraine, but in 2014, we drew the consequences of the irresponsible behavior of Russia when they annexed Crimea. So when that happened, we said, or I said in the bank, this guy is not going to stop there. So we interrupted or ended our activities in Russia. It was the so-called partnership for modernization, which Russian industry would urgently need. And we redirected these funds into the neighboring countries of, of Russia, in particular Georgia, Moldova, and also Ukraine, of course. And so uh, when the war broke out, we were already there, and then we could uh, increase our activities there. But you can imagine that this is, from the point of view of a, of a financial institution, very, very uh, risky business. If you rebuild a hospital for the second time because it has been shot down in between, then you know that the next time you invest there, you need to convince your investors. And that is why we need the support of the European Union and the member states. And this is why I definitely hope that when the new financial framework for the European Union comes about, hopefully in the course of the fall for next year on, that we will be covered by EU guarantees again. Presently, we are not. And this is why we have set up a guarantee fund uh, for this year, which is uh, already helped by uh, 17 or 18 member states of the European Union. And those discussions on budgetary issues and the MFF are due to, to kick off in Brussels. You're here in New York this week. On my way here into the office, I spotted somebody from Namibia, for example. So you're doing a lot of outreach, a lot of connections with other non-EU countries. Tell us about that. Well, that is, of course, the the big charm of of New York. But uh, we are reaching out more and more anyway. I've spent uh, the last weeks, several times, days in in New York, but also in Cartagena, Colombia, and other places around the world. So uh, this year in particular is very, very outward-oriented, 
And that is urgently necessary because uh, with the huge geopolitical changes in our world, uh, we need to position the European Union and the bank uh, accordingly and need to take up the new challenges. So about, what, 10% of, of your investment is international, non-EU? Is, is that around? Oh, it has become even more than 10%, but uh, I think it is necessary that our shareholders who, of course, are first of all interested in the support of their activities inside their countries, see that for the pursuit of the European interests in the world, it is necessary to have strategic partners outside, not only in the context of new energies, for instance, after the Russian aggression against Ukraine and the hit that it gave to uh, energy supplies or food supplies when it comes to that part, part of it. No, it is also very, very important to, to see our interests when it comes to critical raw materials and supplies, and not only mining, but also refining and processing. Any examples you can give of the kind of projects you're investing in internationally? Well, for instance, the EIB was uh, at that time the, the pioneer when it came to offshore wind, or wind farms in general, as a matter of fact. Then later on, right now, we are probably the pioneers when it comes to floating wind farms, which have a huge increase in output compared to uh, land-based or uh, coastal line-based uh, wind farms. This electricity, for instance, is urgently needed to uh, produce green hydrogen. If we want to turn towards a hydrogen world, then we may need to make sure that this hydrogen itself is green and does not produce a climate problem. And uh, that requires huge amounts of energy. And with the, with the modern sustainable energy production possibilities, we can provide that. So uh, hydrogen is very, very important, but getting to green hydrogen requires huge investments. The EIB has been in the news a lot recently uh, for one big reason. That's because you are stepping down at the end of the year. A new successor will be picked. And at the moment, uh, there is a, a very interesting contest going on with some major figures who are running to, to take over from you, including Margaret Vestager, the EU competition chief, and Nadia Calvino, the VP of Spain, the economy minister. What's your view? Are you, are you touting for anyone? What's your view on how this race is playing out? Well, I'm not stepping down. My, my term is running out. So the 12 years are over and I look back with great astonishment and joy. And uh, I now see that nowadays incredibly important and high-level people are interested in succeeding me. So they're delivering themselves a real battle. And uh, I see that with joy. And uh, I'm very happy about it because obviously we have managed to get the bank out of the woods of Luxembourg and into the awareness of the political leaders. So we are center stage on key issues like health, where we played a major role in the fight against the COVID disasters, climate anyway, and uh, innovation. So are you, uh, have you put forward any views on who you think would be best placed to run this institution? Oh, for heaven's sake. Uh, I'm very happy that we have five outstanding candidates, by the way. Two of them are already inside the bank, two vice presidents, Mr. Estros and, and Ms. Czerwinska. And uh, the fifth one is a, the former Italian finance minister. So all top-level candidates. And I'm in the very, very favorable uh, and lucky situation to say, OK, whoever will take over, the bank will be in very good hands. I had to try, but thanks for that. One issue for the EIB going forward, we've spoken about Ukraine and the need there, for example. The other issue is the financing of nuclear. Do you think the EIB is going to or should finance nuclear as a category? Our statutes do not exclude this, but we have never done it. 
And I don't think uh, for the time being this will change, but it is a highly controversial political issue. And since we are a bank in the pursuit of political strategic objectives, we need to see how this is going to, to go out. But uh, the difference of opinion within the European Union are so high that we better don't uh, stick our head out. And for example, on nuclear, we know certain countries really are pushing for this investment in nuclear. I'm thinking France, for example, President Macron has been uh, very open about this. Is it the case then, and if there was a decision, would that be for the finance ministers of the EU to decide this? Well, of course, this is the highest decision-making body of the, of the bank. But of course, our people in the bank have an opinion as well, and uh, they would have to see how that can be brought together with the, with the political priorities of our leaders. So you mentioned you've been 12 years in this role. What are the biggest changes you've seen over that more than a decade as the president of the European Investment Bank? I think we have achieved to make it clear, and this is not new, but it has not been in the awareness, that impact comes before volume. So we are not there to produce incredibly high volumes uh, and take away business from, from commercial banks. We need to step in when we are needed, when we produce value added. And this is the case with the bank, and I think we have brought that to the awareness of our political leaders and the public with a high degree of credibility. One theme here in New York is the issue of climate. The Climate Action Summit took place on Wednesday. You were participating in that. What is the EIB's stance on investment in this green area? I think we have very often in the history of the bank be the pioneers. We were the pioneers when it came to the first wind farms, We were the first ones when it came to issuing green bonds and making sure that what is labeled green contains green. That means we are fighting against uh, all kinds of cheating or greenwashing. So these are uh, key issues which bring us center stage on the climate issue. And then uh, after the uh, situation in 2019, we decided we would move out of fossil fuels completely. Uh, That was not easy to swallow for some of our shareholders because some of them are highly dependent upon fossil fuels. But at the end of the day, we got consensus in the European Union on this. So we have moved away from fossil fuels. We have said, okay, the entire bank must, with all its lending, be climate neutral and Paris aligned that we have achieved. And we have said, okay, to have a quantitative goal by 2030, we want to have triggered climate-related investments by the order of uh, 1 trillion euros, and we are on a very good way to achieve that objective. Finally, any plans for your retirement, if I can call it that? I've talked to my wife, and uh, she pretends that she's happy that I come home. But uh, when she has the perspective of uh, seeing uh, me reorganizing the household, she said, OK, maybe you should not concentrate on gardening and things exclusively. And if you can contribute to something serious also in the next years, I'm ready. OK, so you're open for offers. The good thing is uh, I've had a very uh, full professional life, so uh, I'm not uh, running for for big salaries, I'm running for contributions to something of which I'm convinced. Werner Hoyer, thanks very much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you very much. Finally, it's been clear throughout our time this week in New York that climate and the green transition is top of the agenda for politicians of all stripes, as well as businesses and corporations and civil society representatives who are all represented here in New York. The EU has prided itself on being a leader in this area, passing a huge package of climate policies known as the European Green Deal. Maro Sefcovic has recently been appointed as the EU's climate chief 
following the resignation of Franz Timmermans, who's running for election in the Netherlands. The Slovak commissioner explains how the EU's climate goals are being received here at this global gathering. It's very important week because uh, we're starting the political season with probably the most pressing question of today, how to deal uh, with the climate change. I think that this week discussion would be very much on the backdrop of what was, I think, the most devastating summer we have seen since since ever. It's clearly the hottest summer, hottest month. I think we, we have seen the fires, the floods, and I think that this climate emergency is kind of perceived all over the world. So what we are coming as uh, Europeans uh, to call for is ambitious action. We just simply need to realign our forces. We will prepare, I think, in very diligent manner the COP28 discussions uh, in December where we would need to complete the first global stock take, which uh, is the coded word for how are we doing vis-a-vis our commitment, uh, which we undertook collectively as a global community in Paris. Are we on the target of 1.5 degrees Celsius? Are we off the target? And I think it's quite obvious that we are off the target. So how to kind of bring this ambition towards uh, respecting these goals? Second, I think uh, what would be, of course, a very important discussion is, uh, will we meet for the first year in 2023 our, again, commitment of the developed world to organize this uh, transfer from public and private funds to the developing world in the realm of $100 billion. I think we as Europeans, we have very good story to tell. Uh, with the uh, 23 billion euros, we are clearly, clearly the, the leading uh, provider of this type of assistance. And we just call on everybody else to make sure that uh, this year we'll finally make. It seems we might, but we need to push for it. And the last thing I would uh, Manages also the very, I would say, European initiative. We would uh, call on uh, all parties in COP and all countries in the world to accept as a, as a pledge, as a global uh, global target, uh, to triple our production of the electricity from renewables and double energy efficiency across the world. And I know because we got the signals, and that would be the last uh, element I would mention, is that for the countries from the developing world, the discussion about so-called loss and damage is becoming very important. So we want to meet as many parties and partners as possible so we'll be well prepared for COP28, which we hope will deliver very concrete results. Now, the EU has a target to be climate neutral by 2050. Some see this as a very ambitious target, but others are pushing for quicker action. Secretary-General Antonio Guterres has called for an end to new fossil fuel exploration and for rich countries to quit coal, oil and gas by 2040. Leaders of developed countries must commit to reaching net zero as close as possible to 2040, the limit they should all aim to respect. Is the EU considering this call? We want to be a serious partner and uh, we did our calculations and we did our math correctly and we know that 2050 is already a very, very ambitious target. So we will do our utmost if it can happen earlier. Of course, we will not delay it. But I think that currently more important thing than uh, just to focus on kind of more ambitious goals is to implement what we have to do because this is the this is more than industrial revolution because we are we are changing the business model we are we are changing the behavior of the of the whole societies and uh, we are doing it already in quite dire circumstances when we see how the climate is changing um, every every year so we think that uh, 
2050 for European Union is very ambitious. We do our utmost to deliver it because for us it's slow. And we, of course, would just plead with other developed economies to do the same and on top of it to help the developing world to catch up with all these efforts so we as a, as a mankind can really start the second half of the century as a climate neutral world. But not everyone in Europe is on board with these ambitious climate targets. There's been an increasing pushback among members of the European Parliament, not least members of the EPP, that's the centre-right group in the Parliament, about aspects of the Green Deal. I asked the Commissioner how we plan to address these concerns. What I think we need uh, to do is to engage more public opinion in Europe. Therefore, I would like to organise the Green Social Dialogues across uh, the European Union because we need... uh, to listen and to show that we respect the opinions of the citizens and uh, therefore we want uh, to kind of uh, make sure that uh, strong support we had uh, from the European citizens for the Green Deal and for our environmental policies is there and that we will cultivate it also in the future. And the second, I would say, a big element uh, which is very important is that uh, we want uh, to transform in the practical terms the slogan which we've been proposing for a long period of time that for us the Green Deal is a growth strategy. And we want to do it very clearly with the industry. We want to make sure that the investment into the Green Deal future and technologies are good for our industry because it increases, improves competitiveness. And competitiveness is, of course, very important for the European social model. So these are, I would say, the, the accents you, you will see more coming from the European Commission in, in the next uh, weeks and months. And that was European Commission Executive Vice President Maro Sefcovic speaking to EU Confidential here in New York on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly. And that's it for us this week. Remember to follow the podcast on your favourite app so that you never miss an episode. And we always love receiving your emails and feedback. Special shout out to TJ in Iowa. He reached out about our MEP debate that we featured on last week's episode. So thank you for listening. For those of you who would like to get in touch, our email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Suzanne Lynch. Thanks this week to our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez, here with me in New York, and our senior audio producer, Diana Sturis, in Brussels. See you next week. <laughs>